Blog Talk Radio. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. Continued. Cassette 2, Side 2. Good evening and blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. To those who favored the proposed Negro Convention, it was a means of self-expression. If we act with our white friends, wrote Charles B. Ray, the words we utter will be considered theirs, or their echo. Ray and those who shared his viewpoint were vexed by the Anti-Slavery Standard, the organ of the American Anti-Slavery Society after the 1840 division, which condemned any separatist movement by Negroes. Such exclusive action strengthened segregation, said the standard, asserting that there was no need for a colored convention when thousands of whites stood ready to help the Negro. Samuel Ringgold Ward, a former slave, fired a letter to the standard's editor, taking issue with his point of view. I know that your intention is correct, but had you worn a colored skin from October 1817 to June 1840, as I have, in this pseudo-republic, you would have seen through a very different medium. The argument as to the desirability of all Negro reform societies did not end in 1840. Indeed, it never ended in antebellum America. But as concerns the abolitionist movement, the great majority of Negroes preferred to act in concert with whites. The Colored Convention of 1848, held in Cleveland, recommended that Negroes join white abolitionist societies wherever possible. If, however, Negroes had no choice other than to organize societies, they should do so without exclusiveness. Hence, after 1840, Negro abolitionists continued to participate in the general societies, in many instances holding high office. In 1847, Frederick Douglass became president of the New England Anti-Slavery Society. Robert Purvis served as president of the Pennsylvania Society from 1845 to 1850, declining a sixth term. And Charles Lennox Remond held similar office in the Essex Anti-Slavery Society for a like length of time. Fortunately for the abolition crusade, a number of able Negro recruits swelled the ranks around 1840, most of them former slaves. Freeborn or slave-born, the Negroes who became active abolitionists were generally the most able men in the group, the cream of the crop. For although the Negroes in general favored the anti-slavery movement, not all of them took part in it. Indeed, to speak of a group mind among Negroes is misleading. The mind does not take its complexion from the skin, wrote a Negro editor in 1849. To be a colored man is not necessarily to be an abolitionist. A white abolitionist editor charged that some Negroes were pro-slavery in feeling or indifferent to the slave. Such Negroes were misguided by priestcraft or swayed by the fear of public opinion 
or apprehensive lest any anti-slavery activity on their part would hurt their business. Oliver Johnson, editor of the Sympathetic Bugle of Salem, Ohio, held that Negroes were so widely separated by sectarian and party lines as to impair their efficiency in breaking the chains of the enslaved. N.P. Rogers, another journalist, asserted that dark-complexioned people are said to be peculiarly hostile to anti-slavery, and there is a good deal of truth in it. These white observers furnished little evidence for their charges, which might well have been based on a single observation or incident, like that of Rogers, who quoted as his only source a young colored woman. But Negroes themselves levied similar charges. A meeting of Negroes in New York on July 22, 1834, adopted a resolution condemning all persons of color who were not anti-slavery, denouncing them as the greatest enemies of our cause. Charles Lennox Remond, in a letter to Garrison, chided young Negroes, male and female, for being indifferent to the anti-slavery crusade. Henry Highland Garnett expressed the opinion that there were Negroes in Boston who, if they became plantation masters, would make the blood fly from their slaves. William C. Nell noted that among Negroes there were, unhappily, complexional distinctions, although he hastened to blame slavery for such intraracial color prejudice. Obviously not all Negroes had two of the most essential qualities requisite to a black reformer, the will to activism and a full readiness to risk personal assault. Many Negroes were outwardly apathetic, their indifference a shield against a hostile world. Their bystander behavior was a form of survival insurance in a social order that denied them legal and political equality. A Negro abolitionist might not be called upon to stop the mouths of lions, but he ran risks exceeding those of his white counterpart. When William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass appeared at the courthouse in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, on August 8, 1847, to hold a meeting, no attempt was made to molest Garrison. Indeed, he was listened to with marked attention and respect. But when Douglas arose, there were loud catcalls, followed by a barrage of rotten eggs and brickbats and an explosion of firecrackers. As Douglas observed later, a hated opinion is not always in sight, whereas a hated color is. Lecturing in Buck and Montgomery counties in Pennsylvania in the spring of 1845, Charles Lennox Remond wrote that mobs and rumors of mobs were to be expected. Such disorderly and mischief-bent groups had a penchant for Negro properties. In the outbreak of violence against the abolitionists in New York in July 1834, the more than 20 houses leveled to the ground all belonged to Negroes. Some light-skinned Negroes, not caring to battle against discrimination, passed for white. Some who were Negroes in the South became white upon crossing the Mason-Dixon line. The colored white, as James McCune Smith called them, were numerous in New York State. Six of Smith's acquaintances at the New York African Free School crossed over in 1826, as did ten of Peter Clark's schoolmates in Cincinnati. Negroes believed that, as a rule, a swarthy person who was hostile to blacks was likely to be a passer. Generally, those Negroes who were themselves inactive in the movement held a high regard for those who were. 
This esteem for black movers and shakers reflected a familiar process of identification reinforced by one of the universal factors in man's experience, a homage to men of mark. For those who had the wish to be active abolitionists, but who lacked the will, one enterprising business firm furnished a substitute of sorts. It produced lithograph portraits of black reformers Delaney, Douglas, Garnet, and Raymond, advertising the portraits as highly suitable for hanging in the parlor. The most notable of the hero figures who emerged so providentially in the 1840s were former slaves. In most instances, their freedom had been self-won, either by flight or purchase. In fewer cases, their freedom came from others, either from relatives or friends who purchased it, or from kindly or conscience-stricken masters. Self-purchase was far more common than might have been expected. The turn-of-the-century pioneer leaders, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, had bought their freedom. The father of Peter Williams, rector of St. Philip's Church, and the father of William Still, the underground railroad operator, were both self-purchased. Crucial to such a transaction was the cooperation of the master. Generally, he was paid in small installments, the former slave raising the money by working, speaking at abolitionist meetings, or making door-to-door appeals. Not all attempts were successful. A slave, Louis Day, about to be sold to Georgia in July 1838, visited John Quincy Adams at his office in the House of Representatives, soliciting help but Adams could only commend him to mercy and patience. Even after raising the money, a purchaser could face heartbreak. Moses Grandy paid for himself three times, his first master being unscrupulous and his second master a bankrupt. For all its hazards, self-purchase proved an open sesame to thousands. In 1837, of the 18,768 Negroes in Philadelphia, 254 had bought themselves, paying an average of $278. Cincinnati, nearer than Philadelphia to the Cotton Kingdom, had a higher proportion of self-purchasers. A first-hand report made at the meeting of the Ohio Anti-Slavery Convention held at Putnam in April 1835 lists in staccato fashion a series of case studies in the stock market. David Young, an emancipated slave, had bought his wife and six children. He paid for them $1,265. He yet owes $110 for the last child. This he expects to pay this summer. Henry Boyd bought himself at the age of 18. He is now 31 and is worth $3,000. He has also bought a brother and sister, for whom he paid $900. Samuel Lewis paid $500 for himself before he was 18 years old. Rebecca Madison paid $1,800 for herself and is now worth $3,000. Henry Blue paid for himself $1,000, is now 39 years of age, and is worth $5,000. He attends school every day. As this report indicates, it was common for one member of a family to buy the freedom of another member. In one week in March 1834, Theodore D. Weld visited more than 30 families and found that over half of them were skimping and saving to purchase close relatives still in slavery. Frank McWhorter, who came to Pike County, Illinois in 1829, purchased himself, his wife, their 13 children, and two grandchildren, raising $10,000 for the 17. 
former slave John Gloucester, who became pastor of the First African Presbyterian Church in 1807, purchased his wife and their four children. After raising $1,400 for her own freedom, Alethea Tanner bought her sister, Laura Cook, and the latter's four children, one of whom, John F. Cook, became a civic leader in Washington, D.C. The Cleveland abolitionist, John Malvin, used some of his earnings as a canal boat operator to pay for his father-in-law, Caleb Dorsey. Pierre Toussaint, hairdresser for fashionable New York women, purchased his wife and sister. Walter Freeman bought his own liberty and that of his wife and six children, paying a total of $2,550 to his master, George E. Badger, Secretary of the Navy under President Harrison. This feat was duplicated by Lunsford Lane in North Carolina, except that he raised $3,130 for his family of eight. His exploits so far exceed those of Aeneas, wrote an abolitionist sheet, that could Virgil hear his story, he would be ashamed of his own hero. In some instances, Negroes purchased the freedom of slaves who were expected to pay the purchase price on the installment plan. Such an agreement was made between 20 Negroes and John Barry Meacham, pastor of the African Baptist Church of St. Louis, who previously had bought his own freedom, that of his wife and their children, and of his father. Esther Lane of New York City, after buying herself and her husband, paid for the freedom of ten others, in some cases receiving small payments from time to time, and in other cases receiving nothing at all. Former slaves proved a godsend to the cause. The Western Anti-Slavery Society reported that volunteer agents Harmon Beeler and his brother Halliday had received their commissions not from the society but from God by virtue of their skin color and their experience of the depth and damning wickedness of American slavery. Writing in 1850, William Lloyd Garrison ranked such figures as Henry Bibb, William Wells Brown, and Frederick Douglass with the ablest speakers in the movement, and the best qualified to address the public on the subject of slavery. While not the only black abolitionists emerging in the 1840s, this trio does provide a suggestive portrait of their colleagues of color, illustrating procedures that were commonly employed. Henry Bibb, born in Kentucky, escaped to Cincinnati in 1837. Returning to the slave states for his wife, he was captured only to escape for a second time. He made his way to Detroit, where he felt himself to be a man, he said, and not three-fifths of a man. Bibb became an abolitionist lecturer, traveling from Michigan to Massachusetts during the middle and late 1840s. Lewis Tappan, who presided at his lecture to the Brooklyn Female Academy in May 1847, did not put him in a class with Frederick Douglass, but he spoke of Bibb's touching earnestness. Tappan, who had heard all of the leading orators in the movement, found it impossible to listen to Bibb without feeling his heart swell with the deepest hatred of slavery. Bibb's other lectures in Brooklyn and New York on that visit constituted an important service to the cause of liberty, in the opinion of Gamaliel Bailey. A master of pathos, Bibb often sang The Mother's Lament, a piece purportedly sung by slaves about to be sold. At the end of a lecture by Bibb at the Baptist Church in Blackiston, Massachusetts, the entire audience stood up, signifying their desire to hear him again. Bibb was light-skinned and had straight hair, 
which prompted the Blackstone Chronicle to observe that slaveholders cared very little for the complexion of their victims. Following the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, Bibb went to Canada, edited The Voice of the Fugitive at Sandwich, and became a promoter of Canadian colonization. William Wells Brown was, like Bibb, a light-skinned escaped slave from Kentucky. During his flight, he was aided by a Quaker, Wells Brown, whose name he added to the single name of his slavery days and to whom he dedicated his first book. In the 1840s, William Wells Brown served as a lecturer for anti-slavery societies in New York and Massachusetts. A fair speaker, he was a better writer. He was, says Vernon Loggins, the first Negro American to attempt seriously the novel, the drama, and travel literature. In 1848, he compiled what was perhaps the best of the songbooks to come out of the movement, the Anti-Slavery Harp, a collection of 46 pieces to be sung to such familiar tunes as O Susanna, Auld Lang Syne, and My Faith Looks Up to Thee. During the first six months of 1849, Brown toured the anti-slavery circuit exhibiting William and Ellen Craft. Slaves in Macon, Georgia, the Crafts escaped late in 1848. Ellen, a quadroon, disguised herself as a man and assumed the role of a slaveholder, with William as an accompanying slave. This dramatic escape became part of the folklore of the abolitionist crusade, in part because Brown took the couple in his charge and gave them maximum exposure. He arranged meetings for them throughout New England, sometimes charging an admission fee an almost unprecedented practice in abolitionist circles. But the crafts were drawing cards. They said little, but Ellen's appearance created an instant sympathy in a white audience. Brown arranged for his protégés to be presented at the two largest meetings on the calendar of the Garrisonians in the East, the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society's convention in January and the New England Anti-Slavery Society's annual meeting in May, both in Boston. Two months after the latter affair, Brown sailed for Paris to represent the American Peace Society at the International Peace Conference. He stayed abroad for five years. The most influential of the former slaves who joined the abolitionist forces was Frederick Douglass, who ran away from his Maryland master in 1838, settling in New Bedford, Massachusetts. In August 1841, while attending an abolitionist meeting at Nantucket, he was called upon to speak. His sentences were somewhat halting, but William Lloyd Garrison, who followed him, used them as a text for a stirring speech. After the meeting, Douglas was approached by John A. Collins, general agent of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, asking him to become a lecturer. Believing that the public was itching to hear a colored man speak, particularly a slave, Collins had been on the lookout for someone like Douglas. From the outset, Douglas exceeded the highest hopes of his abolitionist employers. He revealed a flair for dramatic utterance. I appear before the immense assembly this evening as a thief and a robber, ran his opening remarks at a meeting of the Massachusetts Society in January 1842. I stole this head, these limbs, this body from my master and ran off with them. Three months later, when Douglas spoke at the annual meeting of the New England Society, 
a newspaper editor wrote that he had seldom heard a better speech as to language and manner. The appropriateness of his elocution and gesticulation and the grammatical accuracy of his sentences. Fortunately for Douglas, his companions on the reform circuit in his formative years were likely to be good speakers with well-stocked minds. He could learn much from a figure like Wendell Phillips, who had deserted the bar and turned his back on a political career to cast his lot with the reformers. Phillips's oratorical abilities were unsurpassed in 19th century America, entitling him to be called Abolition's Golden Trumpet. Douglas, however, was not one likely to be overlooked on the public platform, no matter what the company. From his first weeks with Collins, he was a drawing card. His voice struck the ear pleasantly, and as he gained experience, he capitalized on it to the fullest. Melodious and strong, it varied in speed and pitch according to its use, whether to convey wit, sarcasm, argument, or invective. A first-rate speaking voice was not Douglas's only asset. He caught the eye, a man people would come to see. Six feet tall, broad-shouldered, his hair long, as was the custom, and neatly parted on the side, his eyes deep-set and steady, nose well-formed, lips full, and skin bronze-colored, he looked like someone destined for the platform or pulpit. Not relying solely on nature, Douglas had something to say. In his first weeks as a traveling agent and lecturer, he devoted himself to a simple narration of his experiences before freedom. From a description of slavery, he began to go into a more direct denunciation of it. Gradually, in his public appearances, he broadened his subject matter, attacking the church for its timidity on slavery, demanding its abolition in the District of Columbia, and criticizing the annexation of Texas. In 1845, Douglas added to his growing prominence by the publication of a book describing his life as a slave, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. Storytelling in tone, it was of absorbing interest in its sensitive descriptions of persons and places, including a sharply etched portrait of a slave-breaker named Edward Covey. Boosted by good press notices and reviews, the narrative became a bestseller on two continents, over 30,000 copies being sold in five years. Douglas's biography was but one of the nearly 100 such slave narratives published in book form. These autobiographies and biographies of former bondmen loomed large in the campaign literature of abolitionism, furnishing propaganda of considerable proportions. Their critics would charge that slave narratives were overdrawn, relying heavily upon the pathological. Tales of miscegenation, sadistic masters, separation of families, harsh treatment, and cruel punishment. Moreover, it was charged, slave narratives were written without proper documentation, without benefit of notes, diaries, letters, or a revisit to the old homestead for an on-the-spot rechecking. In the preface to his autobiography, Samuel Ringgold Ward apologized for not having a solitary book or paper to refer to, for a fact or passage. Any conversation appearing in a slave narrative would have to be reproduced, any dialogue reconstructed. In the biography of Lunsford Lane, conversations have been reproduced with a freedom worthy of the Greek historians, wrote James Spencer Bassett. The story which James Williams recited to John Greenleaf Whittier 
had so many discrepancies that its sale was discontinued in 1838 by the red-faced executive committee of the American Anti-Slavery Society. Unquestionably, the slave narratives were propagandistic. They were, after all, a weapon in the warfare. But if they were to be believed, they had to be as accurate as possible. Hence, aside from a few hoaxes, most of the slave narratives were soundly buttressed in fact. The abolitionists preferred to have former slaves write their own stories, not only to counter the notion of Negro inferiority, but to give them the stamp of authenticity. When the abolitionist societies found it necessary to employ ghost writers, they sought persons with a high sense of integrity, such as Lydia Maria Child, John Greenleaf Whittier, and Edmund Quincy. Whatever their relative admixture of social reality and sensationalism, slave narratives moved well in the book marts. No Negroes before or since have ever experienced less difficulty in getting published. Four editions of the biography of William Wells Brown made their appearance in less than two years. In a similar span, over 27,000 copies had been sold of the narrative of Solomon Northrop, a free Negro who had spent 12 years in slavery after having been kidnapped and put on the auction block as a runaway. Slave narratives made a deep impression in the North, most readers finding their testimony quite persuasive. To Giles B. Stebbins, the narrative by Douglas was a voice coming up from the prison house, speaking like a thousand-voiced psalm. Another reader said that she had wept over Oliver Twist, that her tears had moistened whole chapters of Eugene Sue's Mysteries of Paris, but that Douglas's narrative had entered so deep into the chambers of my soul as to entirely close the safety valve. In December 1855, Lewis Tappan wrote Douglas that his wife had read Your History over and over again. Its contents will be laid up in our hearts. A Boston newspaper man defied anyone to have any patience with slavery after reading Bibb's book. The Unitarian clergyman, William H. Furness, confessed to picking up Solomon Northrop's narrative reluctantly, feeling that it would show the marks of bookmaking. But what he found was a work that riveted the reader from beginning to end, giving him a deeper impression of slavery's savage spirit. The influence of the slave narratives was widened by the abolitionist weeklies, which reprinted extracts from them or ran them in serial form. Chief among the items likely to be selected for reproduction was a slave's letter to his former master. A long letter to one's erstwhile owner berating him for his sins of omission and commission was found to be an effective device. I intend to make full use of you, wrote Douglas to his former master, as a weapon with which to assail the system of slavery. Bibb, Brown, and the clergyman, orator, and underground railroad operator, Germaine Wesley Loguen of Syracuse, were among the other more prominent correspondents whose letters to former masters were displayed over and over in the columns of the anti-slavery weeklies. And if the master could be goaded into making a reply, as in the case of Bibb and Loguen, his letter was gratefully pounced upon by the abolitionist cheats. Harriet Beecher Stowe praised slave narratives for the vigor, shrewdness, and originality that their characters exhibited, and for their clear portrayal of the slave's own viewpoint. Well might the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin speak such words of commendation. 
Far more than she could ever sense, the vast audience that responded to her classic tale of Uncle Tom was an audience that had already been conditioned and prepared by the life stories of runaway slaves. Or, as the knowledgeable Frederick Law Olmsted pointed out, most Northerners got their impressions of slavery from having read slave narratives. Hence, if President Lincoln could greet Mrs. Stowe as the little lady who made this big war, certainly some of this credit might be shared by those former slaves whose stories had been dinned in the public mind, creating an adverse image of slavery that helped make possible the emergence of a Mrs. Stowe and an Abraham Lincoln. The avowed intention of the slave narratives was to loosen the bonds of the enchained, and, as has been noted, they succeeded in winning a wide readership. There were, however, other publics to be reached and other ways to reach them. Taking this into account, Negro reformers were prepared to plumb the resources within the black community itself. The creation of a distinctive literature was no mean feat, but it hardly left black Americans spent and unfertile. Chapter 4. Pulpit and Press In our onslaught upon what we term separate institutions, we too frequently lose sight of the fact that to our church, association, and school, we are at this hour chiefly indebted for whatever of preparation we have made for the great battle of today. William J. Whipper, 1855 the eight Negroes who were numbered among the founders of the American and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society in May 1840 had one thing in common. They were all clergymen. Jehiel C. Beeman and his son Amos G. Beeman, then on the threshold of a useful career as pastor of the Temple Street African Church in New Haven. Christopher Rush, second bishop of the Zion Methodists. And five Presbyterians, Samuel E. Cornish, Theodore S. Wright, Stephen H. Gloucester, young Henry Highland Garnet, and the short-lived Andrew Harris, a graduate of the University of Vermont in 1838 and pastor of St. Mary Street Church in Philadelphia. There were many other black clergymen abolitionists in 1840, among them Charles B. Ray of New York, the former blacksmith, James W. C. Pennington of Hartford, the ebullient Samuel Ringgold Ward, all Congregationalists, Nathaniel Paul, a Baptist who was active in the Albany Anti-Slavery Society, and two budding intellectuals, both on the ascetic side, Episcopalian Alexander Crummel, who served as secretary of the New York State Anti-Slavery Society before he had reached 20, and Daniel A. Payne, who in June 1839, just before his ordination, delivered a blistering attack on slavery before the Frankian Synod Lutherans at Fordsboro, New York. Negro leadership in antebellum America was predominantly ministerial, colored men in the other professions being in short supply. This accounted for the key role of the Negro church. As among our people generally, wrote Martin R. Delaney to Frederick Douglass in 1849, the church is the alpha and omega of all things. Since the turn of the century, Negroes had formed independent churches, controlled and conducted by themselves. A small number of Negro Methodists in the North remained in the white Methodist Episcopal Church, but the great majority joined either the Bethel Methodists or Zion Methodists. In doctrine and in discipline, the all-Negro churches were not distinctive, 
their uniqueness rested in their autonomy, their self-government. This desire by the Negro to share more fully in the shaping of his own destiny was one of the two major reasons for the establishment of the separate church. It provided an outlet for self-expression. Writing from the vantage point of an insider, John Mercer Langston praised the Negro church for giving to the colored American the opportunity to be himself, to think his own thoughts, express his own convictions, make his own utterances, test his own powers, and thus, in the exercise of the faculties of his own soul, trust and achieve. Significantly, the denominations that held the most attraction for Negroes were those which were democratically organized, thus giving the rank and file a substantial voice in the religious exercises and business affairs. Another major reason for the establishment of the all-black church was the differing viewpoints between Negro and white churchgoers on public issues and Jim Crow practices. Negroes had become sharply critical of white churches. Frederick Douglass, in a speech to Philadelphia Negroes in 1847, listing the churches of the land as the chief oppressor of the colored man. Three years later, at a convention of clergymen, Samuel Ringgold Ward charged that on the slavery issue the churches had departed from God and the Bible. Tending to conform to the prevailing pattern, the churches broke no new ground in race relations. Negroes criticized the white churches for supporting African colonization. In part, the churches acted from a missionary motive, spreading the gospel, but this made little difference to Negro reformers. Moreover, many white clergymen were charged with holding themselves aloof from the effort to strike at slavery and prejudice, all the while delivering vague sermons on brotherhood. Others were said to be interested in the Negro's soul, but indifferent to his earthly condition. Churches with branches in the South were condemned for their timidity on slavery. In 1832, at a general conference in Philadelphia, Charles W. Gardner urged his fellow clergymen in the Methodist Episcopal Church to denounce slaveholding in their ranks, but with no success. At the general conference four years later in Cincinnati, the church disclaimed any right to interfere with the relations existing between the master and the slave. The 1840 conference held in Baltimore voted to debar Negro church members from testifying against whites in ecclesiastical trials in those states in which law prohibited Negroes from testifying against whites. This resolution drew a long and futile statement of protest from two Negro churches in Baltimore, Sharp Street and Asbury. No man of color can ever be a man in the Methodist Episcopal Church, wrote black Bishop Alexander W. Wayman in 1858. The small number of Negroes who were Episcopalians were subject to embarrassing restrictions. In July 1834, Peter Williams, pastor of St. Philip's Church, was advised by the bishop of the diocese, Benjamin T. Onderdonk, to resign from the executive committee and board of managers of the American Anti-Slavery Society. A dedicated man, one who was always in trouble about other people's troubles, Williams nonetheless felt obliged to follow Onderdonk's request, although with a heavy heart. Five years later, Onderdonk tried to dissuade young Alexander Cromwell from seeking admission to the General Theological Seminary in New York. Cromwell refused to withdraw his application, but the board of trustees, influenced by Onderdonk, voted against granting the petition. 
Cromwell's fellow students at Oneida congratulated him upon his stand and expressed deep regret at the outrage against humanity, religion, and the Almighty. Cromwell later secured ordination in another diocese. But he, like other Negro ministers, could understand the wry comment made by James W. C. Pennington at the General Anti-Slavery Convention in London in 1843. If I meet my white brother minister in the street, he blushes to own me. Meet him in our deliberative bodies, he gives me the go-by. Meet him at the communion table, and he looks at me sideways. White churches that admitted Negroes seated them in a Jim Crow section or pew. There was no interracial mixing before or after services. In Cincinnati in 1840, John Rankin urged his fellow Presbyterians to assist the Negroes in building a church of their own, inasmuch as they were staying away from white churches because of the prejudices entertained against color. In Washington, D.C., a year later, the Negro members of several Presbyterian churches withdrew to form a colored congregation. Their reason was simply stated, We do not enjoy in white churches all the privileges we desire. This was the crux of the matter. As long as white churches practiced Jim Crow, they were not likely to attract many Negroes. It was a clear knowledge of this fact that lay behind the founding of St. Thomas's African Episcopal Church in Philadelphia on August 12, 1794. Its organizers motivated, as they phrased it, to keep an open door for those of our race who may be induced to assemble with us, but who would not attend divine worship in other places. The Jim Crow practices of the First Baptist Church of New York prompted its Negro members to form the Abyssinia Baptist Church in 1808. Negro criticism of the churches for their lack of reformist zeal and Christian example left no denomination untouched, not even the Quakers. In truth, the Quakers were vulnerable. After 1830, their protest against slavery had weakened, in part because they disliked the harsh language of the new abolitionists. The doctrine of immediate emancipation troubled many Quakers who felt that a practice so deeply rooted as slavery called for time and patience. By 1840, many yearly meetings were advising their members to abandon any lingering abolitionist leanings they might have. Ten years later, the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society reported that Quaker hostility to human bondage was a thing of the past. They stand entirely aloof from the anti-slavery movement. This had the quality of overstatement common to abolitionists, but it was not easily challenged, and apparently never was. Quakers could not divorce themselves from the general feeling of condescension toward black people. They will give us good advice, wrote Samuel Ringgold Ward. They will aid in giving us a partial education, but never in a Quaker school beside their own children. Whatever they do for us savors of pity, and is done at arm's length. Jim Crow, as Ward indicated, was no stranger among Quakers. True, the quietness of their religious exercises caused them to lose some colored prospects, such as J.W.C. Pennington. My nature was sensitive, and I wanted to hear singing. Sometimes I went and wanted to hear preaching, but I was disappointed. But there were Negroes of a different temperament from Pennington's, and if they wished to join the Society of Friends, they had a formidable obstacle course to run. 
and admission to membership did not end their travail. At many meeting halls there were benches in back for Negroes, as one of their non-attending colored communicants, Sarah M. Douglas of Philadelphia, ruefully took note. This bench is for black people, she had heard whenever anyone sought to sit next to her at Art Street meeting. For this reason she had stopped attending, but her mother continued to do so, even though she often had a whole long bench to herself. In fairness to her fellow Quakers, Sarah Douglas was quick to acknowledge that among them were a noble few who have cleansed their garments from the foul stain of prejudice. As examples, she singled out the Grimke sisters. Negroes had found a number of other friends worthy of their esteem. As an evidence of their high regard for Elias Hicks, a group of New York Negroes in 1830 named a burial society after him, the New York African Hicks Association. The death of Thomas Shipley of Philadelphia, whose appearances before judicial tribunals had saved hundreds of Negroes from slavery, led to a memorial meeting by Negroes at the First Presbyterian Church, followed two months later by a more elaborate observance at St. Thomas Church, with Robert Purvis delivering the formal eulogy. The heart of every colored man that knew him lies prostrate, bruised and bleeding, Purvis had written in a letter to Garrison. When Benjamin Lundy prepared to move to the West in July 1838, 